The Gospel of John opens in chapter 1, saying, In the beginning was a word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. You know, sometimes I'm here just like the rest of you worshiping. And Jesus is the good shepherd he is the head of the church. And so for me to even have the title lead pastor, to have the word shepherd, because pastor means shepherd, to have, to have the word shepherd next to my name, just, I feel so unworthy. I don't deserve the title pastor. No human does. This is who Jesus is. He is the pastor, the shepherd, I have the astounding privilege of being a fellow sheep just like you. Because the privilege of through the power of his spirit as I submit to this inspired, authoritative, inerrant, infallible word of God, I have the privilege of, of, of shepherding you. And let me just tell you, I don't deserve it. It's humbling. And I feel so privileged to just be a part of what God is doing through this faith family. There are some moments that it's just overwhelming. And, and to have a church that is hungry for the word, like there is nothing better than getting up on a Sunday morning and gathering with the people of God and to feast our souls on this word of God, the word become flesh. We are here by Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is more than just a man. Jesus is the eternal son of God. He is the word. He is the final and complete revelation of the Father. Jesus is the point of John. He is the point of everything. And when you think of the gospel of John that we've been in for the last several weeks, the point of John is to have our eyes open so that we can see with our eyes of faith, being able to see the glory of Jesus and then to enjoy it. It is all about seeing the glory of Jesus. And when you do, when your eyes are opened and you see it, it is receiving grace upon grace. Because we were blind. And he has healed our blindness. We studied the gospel of John chapter 10 last week in our home groups. And what, we, what we've seen there in this last week, we looked at chapter 9 here Sunday morning, and then our home groups, we looked at chapter 10. And in chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. This is direct prophecy of Ezekiel 34, where Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus then said in John 10, I am the door. And so he, this is the third and the fourth time in the Gospel of John that he says, I am, saying that he is God in the flesh. 
he is a good shepherd who's gathering his flock, and he is the door by which we can have access to God. And so this is who Jesus is, fulfillment of all of Old Testament prophecy, promises. And in verse 30, again, of chapter 10, Jesus says, the Father and I are one. He's making it very clear who he is. And then verse, towards the end of chapter 10, the verses describe that all religious leaders are picking up stones ready to kill Jesus for his, in their minds, blasphemy of saying that he and the Father, he and God are one. And so let me just read to you at the very end. So here's what it says in verse 33. Again, this is John 10. He says that they want to kill Jesus because you, being a man, make yourself God. So they understood that Jesus was claiming to be God, and they would not have it. And then verse 38, it says that Jesus came that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Jesus makes it very clear who he is God in the flesh. Let's read the last few verses of chapter 10 and just finish up that chapter because we'll be in chapter 11 today. So John 10, 39. And they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across to Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained and many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So the scene is set for John chapter 11. 10 ends with Jesus getting away. Well, of course he got away. No one can take his life. He lays it down for the sheep. And so they could not just kill him. That's not possible. Jesus laid his life down. So he gets away, he doesn't get arrested, and he leaves Jerusalem and he goes across Jordan River to where John had been previously been baptizing and, and preaching the gospel. And so it ends with the religious elites on full alert and just absolutely seething with anger and they can't wait to get their hands on Jesus to kill him. And then chapter 11 begins. But before we begin chapter 11, let's pray for a moment and ask God to work in our hearts. God in heaven, we don't deserve you. We don't deserve to have your mercy. We are sinners and we acknowledge to you today that we are just so hungry for your word. We are hungry for your presence, and so we just ask in this holy moment that you would speak. You would open our eyes and grip our hearts. We ask here in, in this moment that we would encounter you, Jesus, that we would encounter the resurrection and the life, that we would leave this place changed with with hearts that yearn for your glory, for your kingdom. May we not leave this place the same. We praise you. We ask for your spirit to make his presence so aware. We're desperate for you. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's begin by reading John 11, verses 1 through 3. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. That's a very important point for us to stop right there at verse 3. We know from the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Jesus was very close to these, this family, to Martha, to Mary, to Lazarus. 
And so there's a very well-known story in Luke chapter 10, for example, that describes when Mary and Martha were with Jesus, and you might remember that Martha was busy cooking and, and getting everything ready. She was mad at her sister Mary, who was at the feet of Jesus. So this is the same family. This is Martha and Mary. Now, the very next chapter, chapter 12, describes the anointing of Jesus' feet by, by Mary. And so he's giving us kind of a preview to the next chapter, just for context on who this family is that we're talking about here. And it says, it's very important as we make observations from this text, note, it says that Jesus loved Lazarus. And these sisters, remember, Jesus is not in Bethany. Bethany is about two miles away from Jerusalem. But Jesus has left, and he is across the Jordan River. And so they sent a messenger. There were no phones back then. And so they had to travel and send the message. And so they do that to go tell Jesus, the man whom you love, your friend Lazarus, is very ill. Please come. Verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved, there it is again, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So Jesus is preaching across the Jordan. He gets this message that his friend whom he loves, Lazarus, is very ill. And it says that despite his love for Lazarus, it says that he stayed two more days ministering there. And he did not rush to get to Bethany. Verse 7. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? They haven't forgotten. They recall how chapter 10 ended, even though they didn't have chapters, they're just living their lives. But they remember, they remember, Jesus, they just were trying to kill you. And you want to go back there to the den of wolves? Are you sure this is a good tactical idea, Jesus? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day, as in daylight? So there's 12 hours in the day. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So Lazarus lived in Bethany, again, not too far, about two miles away from Jerusalem, the disciples have no intention of going back there. But Jesus says, I am the light of the world. This is going back to John chapter 1, which is repeated over and over in this gospel. And he says, you're walking with me. I am the light. You won't stumble. No matter how difficult, no matter how treacherous the journey, if you are with me, then your path will be straight and you won't stumble He's telling them, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, there was a euphemism. It was a well-known, just a saying in the Jewish world that to fall asleep meant to die. But to fall asleep could also mean to just be taking a nap, like it mean to just be asleep. And so the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. They're like, oh, he's going to get better. He just needs some rest. Now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, listen to this, this is important to note. Very good observation here. Jesus says, he has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Let that sink in for a second. 
I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, good old Thomas, called the twin, said to the disciples, let us also go that that we may die with him. Always the encourager. He's like, fine. Fine. If we're we're all going to die, let's just go. At least we're going to die together with Jesus. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, which means Messiah, the Son of God who is coming into the world. So in hindsight, when the messenger reached Jesus across the Jordan, Lazarus was was already dead. Like he had died long before Jesus even heard. Jesus, of course, already knew. But by the time the message arrived, it was already over. Jesus knew this. The family is grieving back in Bethany. And can't you just hear it in her voice? The thing is, you're reading just the words, but can you imagine the emotion? They see their brother, whom Jesus loves, and they sent the message, please come. They know that he has healed the man who was lame. He made him walk. He healed the man who was blind. He healed the official son from a distance. He fed a multitude with a kid's lunch. They already know this. They're friends. They hang together. Like, if they were friends, it'd be more than just Facebook friends. It'd be like real friends. Like, for real. They knew Jesus, and they're desperate. So they say, Jesus, please come. And Jesus did not come. He didn't show up until four days later. And there was this, like, Jewish, I don't know how to describe it, like, folklore and just, just thoughts, not from the Bible, of course, but just Jewish thought, that when someone died for the first three days, the spirit kind of hovered around and could possibly be reunited to the person's body. Jesus came on the fourth day, which in the minds of Everyone there, that meant now it really is too late. This is beyond anyone's power. Lazarus is dead. But you see that she has faith. I mean, you you see it. She believes that there will be a resurrection. She says that I know that he will rise again on the last day. She believes that. But Jesus says to her, this is so powerful, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus is saying that he is Messiah and God in the flesh. So when she says that he is the Christ who is coming into the world, maybe thinking, Well, maybe Martha, because of her grief, wasn't thinking clearly. She says that you are coming as in a present active participle, showing active 
continuous action. You are now coming into this world. No, she wasn't confused. She had faith. She knew that Jesus had existed before he became a human. She knew that he came into the world, but she also knew, like she said, that the last day had not yet come, that Jesus had not been fully glorified. Within her grief, within her limited understanding, she believed, she knew that Jesus is Messiah and that he had come, but that he would come fully and display his will when he would bring God's kingdom after his own resurrection. And so I don't know how much she knew, but she's speaking profound truth about has come, but will come fully later. But she's heartbroken. Her brother, this is a close family. And she just says the words that I know some of you have said, if only... If only that had not happened. If only that had not happened. If only God had actually showed up. If only Jesus had actually come. In the middle of her grief, what he tells her is this fifth time in the gospel, he says, I am which means he is God. I am the resurrection and the life. So encountering Jesus is encountering the resurrection and the life. Verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were there in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Just like Mary, or just like Martha, now Mary goes, falls to his feet and says, if only Jesus, if you had just been here, then I wouldn't be in this anguish. So much pain. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So they know the signs that he has done. The people there are confused. They don't understand why Jesus didn't show up, why he didn't heal Lazarus, whom he clearly loved and is weeping over. You see the humanity of Jesus. You see his divinity in this text, but also his humanity. He loved Lazarus, and yet Lazarus got sick and died. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, he came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and just lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. 
But I said this on accounts of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What an absolute amazing display of the glory of God through Jesus, who was one with the Father, buried for four days. Jesus does what they thought would have been absolutely impossible. He resurrects the dead. He calls the dead to come from their graves, to come forth. And I, I, I'm convinced that the reason why he said, Lazarus, come out, and not just come out, because if Jesus had said, come out, then every single grave would have had people walking out of it. Because that's what's going to happen. Very specific on this day, on this occasion, just you, Lazarus. The rest will come. Lazarus, come out. And he does. And it's the seventh sign that he is Messiah and God in the flesh. It is a display of power and wisdom and glory. And it is just stunning to just read it. If you notice, there's a theme. There's a lot, but one of the primary themes I want to focus on from this text is that of the love of Jesus. You notice that it's repeated that he loved Lazarus, loved Mary, and loved the family, was weeping over the loss. And so what you're seeing here is the love of Jesus that is being displayed. So it reveals exactly what the love of Jesus is and why it matters. And there's three specific ways in this text that we're going to unpack together that is revealing how Jesus loves his people. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, man, I came for this sermon. Like, this is an easy one. I already know about God's love. Like, this, you don't need a whole sermon to talk about God's love. I already got this one down. Maybe you do. But maybe you don't. Maybe you think you do. But I've observed in my life, and I'm sure you're not that different, that we can have the world influence our thinking. And we can subconsciously or subtly adopt very man-centered, self-centered views of God and his love. And I pray that today God's Spirit will come in with a sledgehammer and just tear those walls down. For some of you, that's not going to be enough. He needs to bring a wrecking ball. And so I pray that today the Spirit of God will wreck you. That those walls will come crumbling down. And that you will feel the love of God. But the way he defines it, not how we try to manipulate it. So number one, talking about the love of Jesus. Number one, Jesus loves by showing himself. So Jesus loves you by revealing, by manifesting. So I'll pick an easy one, showing. So Jesus loves by showing himself. Verse 3 is clear. Jesus loved Lazarus. There's no doubting that. Verse 5 says it again. Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. So this is clear. The text establishes real Love from Jesus toward Lazarus. But verse 6 is staggering. It says, so. Did you catch that? He loves Lazarus. Therefore, because he loves Lazarus, he stayed two days longer. Did you catch that? He stayed 
and allowed his friend to die. And the motivation was love. Jesus loved Lazarus, so he stayed. Did, did you read that in the text? Did you make that observation when we were reading through this? How amazing it says. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, what did he do? He rushed back. He stayed two days longer doing God's work. And then we read this earlier in verse 15. I am glad that I did not go. And so some of you are thinking, whoa, I thought this is a message of the love of Jesus. What are you talking about with this? He loved, and so which is why he did not go. He let Lazarus die, and he loved, and so therefore he was glad. He was happy about not going and letting Lazarus die. Some of you are thinking, this does not sound like love to me. This sounds like hate. This sounds evil. Jesus sounds heartless and cold, evil. Jesus does not sound loving. There is a contradiction here where some of you, in your minds, you're trying to reconcile. How is this even in the Bible? How is this possible? It is love. But here's the point that we need to understand about the love of God. That he is loving you by revealing, by manifesting. Again, he is loving you by showing you his glory. Jesus said it. This illness does not lead to death in the ultimate sense. Temporarily, yes, but not ultimately. He says this death, he says what? It is for the glory of God. So that, here's the ultimate purpose, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. There's the point. What is love? What does it mean to be loved by Jesus? Love means giving us what we need most. What we actually need. You might think what you need is physical healing. You don't. You might think what you need most is that promotion at work. You don't. If you're younger, you think what I just need is a hot girlfriend. I need it. I need her. No, wrong answer. Some of you that are married, you're like, I just need a better husband or forgot to fix this one. <laughs> I need it. I need. I need a better house. I need a better car. I need this healing. I need this vacation. I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. And Americans have no idea what need is. And if one is see need, leave this country. And then you'll see need. We don't, we don't even know. Like we are so convoluted on needs and wants. We're so spoiled, blessed. <laughs> Sorry, wrong word. I meant to say blessed. Spoiled. Comfortable. We don't even know what we need. But Jesus knows what we need. And what you need most is not financial, material, or physical blessings. What you need most is the presence of Jesus. What you need most is him to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What we need is to savor the glory of God in Jesus. We need him and he will do whatever it takes 
He will allow you to go through whatever pain or suffering is necessary to strip you, to leave you to the point where you recognize that what you need most is him. Jesus is loving you. This is hard, but true. Jesus is loving you when he allows you to experience deep pain and anguish that then leads you to see his glory. That is love. That's love. I'm showing you himself, leading you to treasure him as your greatest joy, leading you to worship him, leading you to your purpose. What is the end of man? What is the goal of man? But to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And he'll do whatever it takes to fulfill his purpose in your life. Now, I know the world tells us, and you can Google this, and there's so many atheists who think they're so smart and say, oh, but what about the problem of evil? What about this problem? And so they say things, they pontificate and say, if there is evil in the world, then that means that God is either not good or too weak to do anything about it. And so since you foolish Christians with your, your spiritual, moral, faith crutch. You're foolish. The fact that evil exists proves that God does not exist. And then we're like, oh no, the atheists are so smart. That's dumb. It's stupid. Like, that argument is a fallacy. It is so easy to see right through this nonsense. If you're an atheist, and if you're here, I'll do respect, but if you're a consistent atheist, then you believe that there is no moral standard. There's no such thing as God, and so therefore there's no such thing as a moral standard, and therefore there is no such thing as right or wrong. It is all preference and dictated by cultural norms. And so therefore, if you are an atheist and you're telling me that there is no standard for right or wrong, then how can you tell me that there is a problem of evil when there is no such thing as evil? Evil doesn't even exist in your worldview. How could you even claim it's a problem? The problem of evil proves God exists. The problem of evil does not prove that he does not exist. It proves that there is an absolute standard for right and wrong. There is a moral standard. There is evil. It does exist. The Eastern mysticism that says that there's no such thing as evil, it's just samsara, it's just an illusion are lying to themselves. This is not an illusion. This is real. There is very real evil. And the fact that it exists is evidence that there's God. And you're like, well, explain that to me. Well, there is a moral standard. And that standard is God. And he is good. But the Bible doesn't deny this. The Bible acknowledges and explains why there is evil. Rebellion against God. Adam did not defeat evil in the garden. It came into the world. And so now there is corruption. There is death. There is disease. There are pandemics. There is great evil. There is death. It's real. The Christian worldview, the Christ-centered, gospel-centered worldview acknowledges Yes, there is evil and it is real. And here is how it came into the world. And yet Jesus solved the problem of evil with his life, death, and resurrection. He took evil on himself. He took our evil so that he could end evil without ending us. And so on the cross, 
you see the problem of evil resolved, accounted for, every evil paid for by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet he offers us forgiveness that we do not deserve and cannot hope to earn. And so, yes, there is evil, but God has a purpose in it, and he resolved it with Jesus. In verse 40, Jesus speaks to Martha, who's in deep pain, says, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? In her pain, in her anguish, she doesn't know what's going to happen a few verses later. All she knows is his brother is dead, and Jesus did not show up. And he says, I have something greater for you than having kept Lazarus alive. I want you to see my glory. That is better than Lazarus not dying. And it is true love, holy love, saying, I offer you what is best. I offer you myself, which brings to the second truth of God's love. So we see here Jesus loves by showing himself. Second, he loves by sharing himself. Jesus loves by sharing himself. Jesus is not some like disconnected or distant deity like the God of Islam. Muslims believe that when you die and if you're Muslim and go to paradise, God's not there. Paradise is godless. He's too far beyond that. You're never going to be in Allah's presence. He's too far, too remote. He's out there. He's not personal. He's disconnected. Or like our, our Hindu friends that believe in this cosmic consciousness known as Brahman. It's not a person. It's more like Star Wars and the Force. That's Hinduism. I like Star Wars, for the record. But it's Hinduism. That's the worldview. It's New Age. So package for Americans called New Age. And we call it, it's the universe. The universe spoke to me. Or the universe this and blah, 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 blah. It's not real. That is impersonal. It's not a God who is personal and near, a God to know and to love and to enjoy. Jesus shares himself. And what this means is sometimes, this is hard, but this is the truth. It means sometimes he will not give you what you want. He will sometimes allow you to go through very painful circumstances, deep waters or very deep valleys. But what he does promise you is that he will be right there with you. And however much pain we experience and anguish we experience, Jesus experienced all of it infinitely on the cross. He suffered more. And he did it to end our suffering. And just like with Lazarus, to speak, come out. If you're a believer, you have heard the voice of Jesus tell you, come out. And you have been resurrected spiritually. And then he said, unbind him or her. Cut away those grave clothes and let them walk in freedom. So if you're a believer, that's you. You walk in freedom. You don't have any more grave clothes because you're not dead. You have been brought from death to life. And so you can walk in freedom. So let me ask you this question. Do you have any grave clothes that are still clinging tight and holding you back and preventing you from walking in the life, in the light, and in the freedom that Jesus offers you? He says, cut him, her loose, and let her go. The love of Jesus ultimately is the gift of his own glorious self. He is sharing of himself and allowing us to come and draw near to him. 
So is your faith just academic or theological? Or do you actually feel love for Jesus? Because he is sharing himself with you. That's the ultimate good. There's nothing else that will satisfy. Do you enjoy him? So Jesus loves by showing himself and by sharing himself. I know our time is expiring, but we have to finish the text. It's important. Let's finish the chapter and see this third truth and we'll wrap up. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. That's huge. Many did believe in Jesus. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. (gasps) Tattling on Jesus. There he is, resurrecting the dead. And there they are, reporting him to the authorities. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? Maybe glorify God? Just a thought. What are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, then everyone will come and take away, and Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So they're afraid of Rome. That's the bottom line here. Verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's a great text. That's a whole like mission sermon for a different day. That he came to die to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region north, near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? And the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. These leaders knew he performed many signs. There's no doubt that he performed the signs. So they believed the signs. But the thing is, they didn't believe that he was Messiah. They didn't believe that he was the son of God. They, they believed that he was a false Messiah. There had been many previous false messiahs. And they had led revolutions. And Rome did not like revolting And false messiahs. And so they thought, Jesus can do amazing wonders. He's going to lead a revolution to go against Rome. But because Jesus is a false prophet and a false messiah, Jesus is going to lose in his revolution against Rome. And then Rome is going to come in here and is going to squash us. And so we need to kill Jesus so that the Romans won't come and destroy us. What's so ironic is, less than 40 years later, in A.D. 70, the Jews did revolt against Rome. And Rome did not appreciate it. And they did come in with basically a steamroller. And they demolished the temple. They ended the high priest. Like, it was all over. They were subjugated just one generation later because of their own evil and rebellion. But this high priest, in his self-centeredness, still spoke truth. He was revealing, number three, that Jesus does love us by sacrificing himself. So he loves us by showing himself, by sharing himself, but by sacrificing himself. He died in our place. This here is the heart of the gospel. And he's bringing in a new creation through his death and resurrection, 
his atoning sacrifice where he was the substitute. It says that now because of that, death is defeated. And so just, be, just like he told Lazarus to come forth, now he will one day come back and resurrect all of God's people and we will live together forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Because he's, as you said, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you will never die. This deeply moved, where it says twice, deeply moved, that actually describes anger. Jesus was angry. He wasn't crying out of sadness. He was actually crying out of anger. He was so mad at the fact that those that he created are suffering under the curse of sin and death. And he was resolved to go to the cross and pay for our sins, take away our evil, and then bring us into glory. Because he is the resurrection and the life. He is God who gives life and only God who resurrects. And Jesus doesn't say, look here, I can point you to God. Jesus says, I am God and I have come for you. And so what does this mean for us today, Renewal Church? You hope in him. You cry out to him. So whatever pain you're working through today, Jesus knows and he cares. And just like with people in the story, he enters into your pain, waits on him. And by his sacrifice, you are healed. Mary and Martha had no way of knowing what was going to happen. Like they had no clue what Jesus was about to do. But they were trusting in him. And really that's us, isn't it? Living, waiting, trusting, depending on him in the unknown, in the uncertainties, because we're part of something so glorious that he is gathering all of his scattered children into being one. That is love. Real love. That he shows and he shares and he sacrificed for us to receive. May this be a church. And I pray by God's spirit, through his grace, that this would be a church that we encounter this real love. And that we can then extend that love of God to a world that is just utterly desperate for it.